Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello there, and welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies podcast on this special Platinum Jubilee weekend. I am joined by one of my favorite humans, Simon Majumdar, he of the Eat My Globe podcast and judge of all manner of Food Network shows from Guy's Grocery Games to Iron Chef America. This episode is packed with a history of tea, the drink, afternoon tea, the ritual, and gin because, well, it's a royal weekend and it wouldn't be a royal weekend without gin. But enough of me. There is so much to learn from Simon in this week's episode. I hope you will pour yourself a lovely cuppa and sit down and enjoy this episode. But before we get to the episode, really quickly, a quick and heartfelt thank you to all of you who have subscribed to my Substack and left reviews of this podcast on Apple. I know it's all a bit of a bother, but all of those things help to support the recipe testing and everything else that goes into this podcast. So thank you. Hello there, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies on this exalted weekend, Jubilee weekend with my <laughs> exalted guest. You get that, you get that. The Right Honorable Simon Majumder, who is here, host of all sorts of shows on the TV, Food Network. We even call it the Food Network now because we know it's on TV. Um, guys, grocery games, Cutthroat Kitchen, and also the host of literally my favorite podcast which is yours oh. eat my globe thank you so much it's uh i'm you call me exalted it is one of those odd things that guy sometimes calls me sir simon majumda <laughs> and he does it as a joke and actually now people have started writing on wikipedia that i was knighted by the queen which i was not i hasten <laughs> to add but people actually believe and i get asked all the time which is obviously Quite apropos, given that we are in the Jubilee and that you know, the Queen is with us and all of that, even though I will say using the, the British use of the word Republican, I very much am. So I'm not a supporter of the royal family in any sense or form, but I do like some of the rituals. That is exactly why I'm here today. It's all for ritual. My husband is British and has <laughs> no, there is no love lost between him and the royal family. And in fact, even like the, a, a little, I do like gawping at them in the way that you like gawping at celebrities, right? But today to see that Megan and what's his face, her husband, um, <laughs> Harry, yes. Megan and her husband, Megan and her husband weren't even allowed to sit in the same row. He wasn't allowed to sit in the same row as his brother or his father. It is that ritual of it. I think when I look at it, and you know, you're a historian, when I look at the royal family, I'm not just looking at this kind of celeb family that you might see in the United States. What I'm looking at is the history. I'm looking at a family or a line of families that have ruined the world, have destroyed Africa, destroyed <laughs> India, destroyed just about everywhere else that they've gone in the world. I'm very jaundiced, particularly coming from you know India and all of that. At, at the same time, you know, if you, you you can't keep me away from a good cup of tea, which of course is all down to, and you can't keep me away from a very nice tea sandwich. So 
there are elements of it that I will I will allow myself to indulge in. <laughs> I wanted to start off with a joke because I know that you always start off with only the finest jokes on your podcast. The very best. The very yeah. best. <laughs> the finest. And I hope this is up to your standards. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, um, I was uh, walking down the street the other day and I saw a sign in the window that said, we serve sandwiches anytime. So I walked in and asked for a bacon sandwich from the Industrial Revolution. Oh. <laughs> I actually rather like that. That's great. <laughs> but That's... as a writer, I'm always looking for a really cheap segue. And that is my cheap segue into discussing the Duchess of Bedford who oh. was around during the Industrial Revolution. And one might even say that the Industrial Revolution gave a little bit of birth to, no one at home can see that I'm sort of like dancing to this, a little <laughs> bit of birth to um, the idea of afternoon tea. Well, it, it absolutely did. Duchess, Duchess of Bedford, although I, I think if um, she's actually, I think it's actually pronounced now or was then Duchess of Beaver, which is very slightly different. Yeah. Which is uh, so, so she, British. <laughs> I know it's so so very British, and, and but she, she was one of these folks who's you know married to a rather you know well-off chap and had a big house estate up in kind of the middle of England. What do you call it? Downton Abbey kind of country. They used to have meals that you know they'd have their breakfast, which wasn't terribly large in those days, and then they would the ladies would quite frankly suffer until they got to supper because they didn't get to eat terribly much and. You know, it was not seen to be eating. Well, she was she was quite a kind of strong woman. And one day in about the 1840s, she said to someone, well, I have a little thinking feeling. I still remember. I often complain of a little, a little thinking feeling. <laughs> and so she demanded that in after coming back hunt, from hunting or riding around the estates and going to see all of their, their kind of tenants, that she mm -hmm. had some food. They brought her a little you know, some cakes and they brought her some, you know, some, just all kinds of things to kind of fill her up. And it, and she rather liked this. So she began <laughs> then to introduce her other friends from the area, her other landed nobility to come and join her. So this became a, a thing, the afternoon tea. And one of the things that you have to say, and I, I always try and get this because people in the US get it wrong. They always go, oh, it's high tea. Absolutely not high tea. High tea is the poor person's meal. That's what you have at the higher table with savouries, to kind of feed you up while you before you go off into the field. So never high tea. But she would have this little afternoon tea. But what I think became so exciting about this was kind of where we are now in afternoon tea. She also, of course, had her London pad. And so she would come down and she would have it in her London pad with her friends. And they would come and have it there. And that was the afternoon tea. Mm. Now, what was really interesting is after that, of course, not everybody had their London a bow. Not everyone had their London pad. So this was when we had the first hotels really launching in London. And you had one which is still there. And I still think does the very best afternoon tea in London, which is called Brown's Hotel. It was started by a Mr. Brown, who was Lord Byron's butler. So you can't get much better provenance than that. <laughs> and what would happen is that you know people would come in and they would share this tea. So it became a big thing. And it still goes on, you know. I mean, I'm sure you've had afternoon tea in London, but if you haven't, even though it is a touristy thing, it is still one of my favorite things to do. And Brown's Hotel is one of my favorites. Now, one of the things that I've heard, and I'm still trying to find out if this is true or not, 
But I'm told that the ladies, when they would sit and they would have their tea on the little low table, they would wear a little ring on their little finger, their pinky finger, which is why you raise your pinky finger when you drink tea. So you were showing your family crest to show that you were a member of a good family. So it's nothing to do with the balance of the cup, although it might have some of that. But it was really to show that you came from a family where you had a crest that you could wear on a little pinky ring. Now, I'm trying to find some kind of provenance for this. But if it is true, it's just the best story ever. It is the best story ever and just kind of reinforces the, the fact that being landed gentry or royalty is sort of awful. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're just they're horrible people, but they gave us great sandwiches. Exactly. I also read that one of the re- I mean, I'm working on a book that sort of takes off in the beginning of the 20th century. And there's so much change that happens because of electrification and everything. Of course. And the Industrial Revolution, you think, well, how could the Industrial Revolution have any sort of impact on tea time? But the fact that they had light, they had electricity, meant that you could eat. I mean, yes, you could eat by candlelight, but more things could happen later in the evening with less trouble for other for people because there was electricity. And also, at the same t- around the same time, and very quickly, once electricity came in, the first thing that the British did was to have kettles. And one of the, and, and I mean proper kettles. I'm not talking about these, these nonsense kettles that Americans put on their stoves and don't even get up to the right temperature. And heaven forfend. The reason I knew that I was going to marry my wonderful wife is that when, uh, her first Valentine's present to me when I came over to the United States was an electric kettle. And, she, and I said, she got me. She absolutely gets me. And so the electric kettle gets it to the right temperature. And the electric kettle is the single most important, I think, piece of equipment in, in British society. If you watch, I guarantee you, during the breaks, during the Jubilee, there will be certain periods where they are having to put on huge amounts of extra power because that's when everyone goes to the kettle and makes their cup of tea. And it is if you're watching the World Cup, for example, and mm-hmm. England are playing in the World Cup, the half time of a bit, there is, they actually plan in months in advance, all the power to have the electric kettles being boiled so everybody has their cup of tea. So all of these things, I think, are just part of what I I think of as identifies as British. And, you know, I'm a very proud American citizen, sometimes less proud because of some of the crazy stuff that is going on. But let's keep it to sandwiches (laughs) right now. But but I'm I'm a huge, I identify very much uh, as as a Brit. And some of those identifying things, like having my cup of tea that I have in front of me, like having all of these things, I think are really, really important. And they, they're very centering for me because they, they just, they're who I am. The number of times we call tea in England, we call it English penicillin. Mm-hmm. So if something happens to you, the first thing, I still remember my grandmother uh, and my grandfather when I broke up with someone in college and it was you know, heartbroken for one of the first times. And my grandmother's words were, let's put the kettle on. Now, it's not just the fact that you're going to have a cup of tea. It's that five minutes or four minutes, whatever it is, of brewing the kettle, making the tea, letting it, letting it. And and that moment of just gentle kind of quiet while you talk and go, well, tell my Welsh grandmother going, well, tell us all about it. Tell us what happened. It's so important to who I am as a Brit. That I find it really, and it's hard to explain to people who go, "Oh, I just—it's just a cup of tea." And you go, "No, no, it really isn't. 
it is an identifier in the way that coffee might be for many Americans. But, you know, that um, I don't want to one-up you because your story is very touching and it's <laughs> nice that your grandmother's like that. However, let me just cut to the chase. My in-laws grew up in Coventry during the Blitz. Oh, oh. Wow. So yes. I, you know, learned from my mother-in-law that they had been like there had been a almost direct hit. They were in their Anderson shelter in the back garden. The house next to them had a, was d- directly hit and destroyed. The only thing that happened to them in that way that fate is kind to you was that the top of their Anderson shelter popped off. But all wow. around them was complete destruction. And I said to her, oh, my gosh, what did you do? What happened? She goes, she looked at me as if I were asking something, just like an aberrant question. She was like, well, we had a cup of tea. (laughs) Absolutely, you did. And and, and Coventry, of course, is one of the the saddest stories because, you know, Hitler, Churchill allowed it to be bombed because, because they didn't want the Germans to know that Enigma had been broken. And so that entire city was destroyed. Because of that, and it's an amazing city, and I, I love it. And it's, they've got the most beautiful cathedral. And mm-hmm. in in response, he went and you know created the firebombs of Dresden. So this is, I mean, the history of this over something where let's put the kettle on. I think yeah. it's really, really, really powerful. What I'm saying is that the whole point of tea and everything about it, it to me is not just it's a ritual. It's it's something I enjoy, obviously, but it's that whole ritual of it. I think is really important. And there's mm-hmm. something that I try and get over to Americans that I've written about it. I wrote a book, my middle book, which wasn't published in the US, was called Eating for Britain. And I mm-hmm. went all over the United Kingdom to go and find you know, the best fish and chips, the best cup of tea, the best blah, 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 the best whatever it was, the best haggis, the best kippers, the best all of these kind of fun things. And one of them was writing about going to have the great afternoon tea. And what I love, and if you get chance, like I said, Claridge's is very good. The Ritz, is, they're all just magnificent ones. But Brown's has a tea sommelier. So they will have, I think they have about 15 different types of tea. And in fact, the one that I'm drinking here now, Speedy Breakfast from the Ooh. Rare Tea Company. Really, really good. So my friend Henrietta Lavelle, she makes wonderful tea. She goes all over the world, Africa, India, all over. Uh, puts together these beautiful teas, but she supplies a lot of teas for brown, I believe. Anyway, so if you people get chance to go, I'm going to give her a push because she's uh, people who make these wonderful teas. And you can find them here in the United States. I think they sell them at places like Noma in you know, Denmark. and I mean, so they're, they're considered very fine teas, but do give them a try. My other favorite, if I'm having an afternoon tea, is with particularly with sandwiches and cakes and all of that, is I love First Flush Darjeeling. I heard you talking about that on your podcast and the way you spoke about it, I nearly, I wanted to get on a plane and get, go to this plantation that you spoke about. Explain this incredible tea that you had, this exalted tea. I think that's going to be our word. Well, no, it is. It is. I mean, well, first of all, the history of tea is one of the great espionage stories of all time. It is one of the, because it was all in China. It was all kept up on pain of death by the Chinese. You weren't supposed to, they would sell it to the British. They would swap it for opium, in fact. But they would, and, but the British decided in the, in the very British way that they were going to have tea themselves and they wanted to grow it in India, which was perfect for growing tea. So they had this chap. He was from the Royal, uh, what do you call it, Kew Garden. He was uh, mm-hmm. one of the great botanists uh, called Robert Fortune. 
they should make a film about this man. He was an incredible man, wrote wonderful books. But he basically disguised himself as, as a Chinese civil servant, went into China under pain of death, hid into all these things, and stole tea plants and put them in bamboo cane and carried them, walked with them to India, to Assam, and then to Darjeeling because they weren't growing tea there. We think of India now as just obviously being a place right. for tea, but it wasn't. This is in the 1800s, so we're not talking terribly long ago. And so Robert Fortune, go and look him up, incredible man. I mean, just one of those great stories. They started growing uh, these teas. So Darjeeling, Assam are two of the big places. Assam, I love, but Darjeeling to me is like the, it's the Nupu's Ultra of tea for me. And so um, what he did was when you grow them, they're beautiful, small, gorgeous little plants. But you can, I've been there. So the one, the estate I went to was called Gumti, which is one of the most uh, beautiful ones. And then you, you can, you get up early in the morning when it's still cold so that they begin to flush. They, they flush twice a year. So it's almost like first, second growth as in tea, as, as mm-hmm. in like grapes almost. You, and, and they can only be picked. You can't have like, someone with big banana fingers like me <laughs> they bring in these they bring in these incredible talented beautiful people from nepal and they've got these ladies who've got i've got pictures on my facebook tiny little hands that they can pick up the four little tea little uh, leaves and that's what makes the first flush darjeeling and you cook it and they are and you use the terms that they use it's just like wine terms bright fresh clean and if you have that for me, always just a tiny bit of milk, and I, you know, that's just my Brit side of it. But you could have it, obviously, with that. And if there is something clean about it, and with the kind of things we're talking about with afternoon tea, go and find some. You've got wonderful, obviously, in New York, you've got wonderful tea suppliers. I, I'm not the biggest fan of mariage fair. I think their stuff is a little kind of rusty for me. Uh, they're yeah, one of the more well-known ones from Paris. But if you go to some that have them, I tell you where it has great ones is, Kalustian has really good um, really? Okay. places that's all the spices. So they have really good uh, first flush. It comes out certain times a year. So these are seasonal teas. You know, but then they'll obviously they dry them, ferment them. Most tea, unless it's a kind of an odd uh, tea you know, from a different plant, comes from the same plant. And it's just a different type of how long it's fermented, how long it's dried, so whether it's white tea, black tea, poor. It's, that all comes from the same teas. And it's just how, how much it's fermented and dried. But have this with a, uh, like, I know we're going to talk sandwiches in a moment. We should talk about the history of the sandwich, because, of course, that has a fascinating story, too. But when you have it with that, there is something about it that is not just special in terms of eating. It's sacramental for me, just like a, 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 a cucumber, something elegant. And we'll talk about the, the <laughs> change, yeah, how sandwiches, sandwiches, in America are wonderful things. Trust me, you, you see me getting my gob around a letter or something, you'd, yeah. you'd, you'd, <laughs> want, you'd, you'd want to look away, but it, <laughs> I've enjoyed myself. But for me, just an elegant cucumber sandwich or a little poached chicken sandwich or a potted fish sandwich or a, just something special like that with this, it's sacramental. It, it actually, I feel it impacting on my DNA, which sounds kind of strange. <laughs> But I just love it. And I'm probably going to have to go and make some nice sandwiches this afternoon now. <laughs> I have about 25 questions about tea while we're on the subject. But I'll, I'll, try and, I'll try and narrow it down. 
is the plant the Camilla sinensis? Yes, Camilla sinensis. So this Robert Fortune chap took these in bamboo. He hid them. If you imagine that kind of classic thing of a a, a worker in China with a bamboo cane and a yeah. and you know oh uh, right it, basically he hid them inside and he basically you know this is an odd time but he covered his face and you know made himself look darker uh, uh, he spoke absolutely phenomenal uh, Mandarin or you know I mean so he he was almost unknowable as anyone but a China has been from China and he brought them out I mean. History, food history, and I talk about this a lot on the show. There's a lot of these incredible stories where trying to get things from places where they were kept separate because they were worth so much money. And so he brought them in, and then they moved them as well to Africa. And obviously, there are incredible teas being made in Africa now. Malawi, Kenya, of course, is is obviously very famous for its teas. And then what really happened was for, for British people, it was very expensive, obviously, to begin with. And it was a lot of it was brought over to Britain early by the Dutch. The Dutch mm. brought it over because it was considered healthy, uh, and of course it was healthy. They boiled the water, which is you know <laughs> one of the just a, just a kind of basic thing. But what happened is Mr. Lipton, who you know we kind of knock Lipton as it were, but he was the one from Scotland who owned these grocery stores, and he bought all this land in Sri Lanka when they'd had a they'd had a coffee blight. They couldn't grow coffee, so he bought all this land in Ceylon then, Sri Lanka now, and uh, grew tea there and brought it into Scotland, into Glasgow, across England, and started selling it very cheaply. And that's how it became a part of that's how it became part of the British identity. So thanks to Mr. Lipton. So these stories about how something as simple as a cup of tea actually altered the way who we are as people. And I guarantee you that you know, the Queen will be having, you know, if she's now, unless she's retired for the night because she's you know, in her 90s, but the Queen will have had her nice cup of tea. And I know the Queen Mother, her mother, apart from when she wasn't halfway up her alley in gin, because she yes. drank a great deal, <laughs> great deal of gin every day. But she was a huge, I mean, she would drink like 15 cups of beautiful tea a day. And, and I, you know, I drink a great deal of tea every day. <laughs> It is one of those things. So it's, I just find it fascinating that something as simple as, as, like I said, like coffee might be for the United States. Oddly enough, just to move on to coffee, just to, just I want to share this because I know you'd enjoy this. But during the uh, you know the Amer during the American Civil War, a lot of the people, including Lincoln, claimed that coffee, real coffee, won the Civil War because they could drink real coffee. And he said, "Our gentlemen will hold the line." whereas the Confederates were drinking hickory coffee. But what was fascinating about that, that I was just in some research, is they found that all of the coffee they were bringing in was coming from Brazil, where it was all produced by slaves. And you go, oh, uh, so the thing, that, the thing that helped to, <laughs> to get rid of slavery was all being produced by slaves, which was really, really dark. But again, it's just this thing that something we take for granted, like a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, has these incredible histories. And that's what I try and do on Eat My Globe. I, that's what I love to talk about. So, anyway, But that's dark. I didn't want to go dark before talking about <laughs> sandwiches and cakes. Well, I mean, the whole history of tea is colonialism, too. So that's, oh, I mean, the absolutely. most recent history. So that, that's incredibly dark. 
But the idea that like there's Darjeeling and Assam, the Camellia sinensis plant, then it becomes more about terroir than anything with tea. It becomes about terroir, and it definitely is terroir. To start with, it then talks about how it fermented. So you know, it's picked, it's dried, it's fermented. The amount it's fermented will impact the flavor. So you could have green teas, you could have white teas, you could have these are less fermented. They they all give different flavors. The the British style tended to be the more black tea. And the reason they started drinking black tea is because green tea, when it first started coming over in big quantities, was uh, was so adulterated. Adulterated, they would yeah. Put, yeah, they would put dough. But once you have to ferment it black, it was much harder to adulterate it. So the black teas that we drink in England, yeah, the very black teas that I'm drinking now, the speedy breakfast, that was because of that. And so that's why British people don't drink a lot of, I mean, Obviously, there's now trends. It's changed. Traditionally, yeah. traditionally, the British, uh, although we're not the largest drinkers of tea per capita, that's the Irish. God bless them. They love, they love, yeah. love, love. I mean, you go to Ireland, you, you practically get it in a drip the moment you get to the airport. <laughs> but, and, I, and I love it. That is, you know, even your kind of simple Barry's Irish tea, which is terrific stuff. But so, yeah, so the ways that you, uh, you would produce your teas change. Uh, and so, obviously, um, they would do it separately in Malawi. How, how they would dry them, whether they would dry them in a dry, in a dryer or whether they would dry them in the sun. Uh-huh. And what I still what I still remember is going to Gumti, and they have these different witherings, what they call withering, where you sh- you shake it so you get different sized leaves, and those are the ones that the, the larger leaves give you a little more flavor. The, and then it ends up basically being dust that's just on a tray at the bottom. And I, I said to the gentleman who was at Goomti, and I said, well, where does that go? He goes, oh, we just give that to the American iced tea. Because it's just, because iced tea is, I'm just going to say it out loud, it's garbage. <laughs> and, and I think it is, it, it is one I of the- I apologize to all my Southern yeah. listeners who are probably drinking it. <laughs> Talk about drinking a lot of tea intravenously. Iced tea in the South, it keeps them Oh, icy. well, I'm, I'm not a fan, but, but basically it's the dust. It's, that's what they use to make that. So everything gets used. For me, you know, just a, a decent sized leaf, hot water, little milk, and then I'm very happy. So to me, <laughs> I, to me, I'd make fun of Lipton tea because usually you get it served in an American restaurant. You're like, I'll have a cup of tea and you get a cup that's been splashed by the waiter as they walk over to your table. With It's because it's in a coffee cup and it's very shallow and it's yeah. hot water with a tea bag on the side. And then you yeah. get this cup of Lipton and it, I mean, it's a terrible way to brew tea, but also I sort of don't think Lipton is that good. And I don't know if that's me because I've become a snob or are the leaves just smaller? The Lipton teas that you get here are not good. Uh, I mean, they're just not good. And the way that they make it, I mean, yeah, we, we're a country and as I said, very proud American. We can put people on the moon and all of, all of these things and you know, all of these, but we can't make a cup of tea. And so I get terribly upset about that. Now, one of the other reasons why I love the fact that my wife should realize that when I'm traveling around the country all the time doing events, which I do you know, culinary events, she realizes I can't get a proper cup of tea, even in the hotel. You know, even if I'm at the Four Seasons and I really want to just get a cup of tea for breakfast, it's ugh. So she bought me a little thermos kettle that I can bring that makes a good one big mug every, and I, so I will make 
So I'll get some milk from the hotel. I keep that in my fridge in the room and I make my cup of tea every morning and I will sit and I'll have that. And again, you know, one of the many reasons I love her, but it was, that was uh, why I have that. And it was one of the great purchases about two or three years ago. I had no idea such a thing existed and it has changed my life. (laughs) (laughs) No more grumpy Simon as he travels the country now. Everything is terrific. One of the things I I thought was funny, speaking of the Queen Mother and her uh, penchant for gin, I was reading about the, in, I guess in the mid 1800s, the tax on tea or the 1700s, the tax on tea was so high. It was like 112% or something oh, like yeah. that. They lowered the tax on tea, which encouraged more people to drink it instead of gin for breakfast. Gin was the crack cocaine of the late 17th century, or late 18th century, rather, in Britain, uh, because William of Orange, you know, who came over to become you know, king, William and Mary, he mm-hmm. came over to become king of England, and he put huge taxes on anything that came from Catholic countries. He was a Protestant. So he put huge taxes on, so brandy, all those things. But gin, he took all the taxes off. And, and at one point, in about 1800, one in four buildings in London was producing gin. I mean, it was the crack cocaine. We talk about, you see all those amazing pictures of Gin Alley and all of that. And that's where you get terms like dead drunk. You, would, you could go to a pub and there was a pipe outside and you would put a penny in and put your mouth around this pipe and they would pour down gin. And it was you know, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence. And it was this rough old gin. And so it's, I mean, it's a fascinating history. And again, I talk about the history of gin. There's an episode on Eat My Globe. And it was literally the crack cocaine of 18th century Britain. And people were, you know, I mean, dying daily in the street. And then they started to bring gin in under kind of taxation. And that's when you started getting the first people like Burroughs, who still produce mm. beef eater, which is one of my favorite gins. And so things like gin, that again, we think of as something, you know, now some people have had bad experiences with it if they've had it uh, you know, in their college years. But if you're, a, I'm a big gin fan, but if you like gin, you know, it's something that we don't think about, but has this extraordinary history as well. The other side of it, of course, is smuggling. You know, if you watch Poldark or all of those wonderful right. shows, tea was one of those that was smuggled in because they wanted to avoid taxes. Interestingly, one of the things that I've been reading about recently, I've just done an episode on the history of rum. Mm. And yeah, we think of, we think of the uh, American War of Independence as being about tea, and we think about the Boston Tea Party. It was all about rum. Tea was a very, very, very minor part of it. Rum was produced in, in New England more than anywhere else in the world. The American the kind of colonists would buy molasses from the, from the Caribbean and turn right. it into rum and sell it all over the world. And it was when they started to tax the rum, they started to say representation, you know, taxation without representation. So it's really fascinating. So the tea side of it is, I think people now, particularly after the kind of the, all the kind of Protestant side of it, they, they don't want to admit that it was all about alcohol. They want to say that it was all about tea. But in fact, it was all about rum. And it's fascinating. I mean, also that that was also the the rum. I mean, one of the things we always learn about here in school, even with the poor way we've taught history here, is about the triangle trade and how that impacted and was essential to the production of rum and to the the slave trade as well. I mean, they kept it going. Absolutely. It was was definitely one of those things that kind of 
itself fulfilled itself as you went from the Caribbean to Africa to West Africa to uh, obviously to New England. And um, I mean, again, dark, dark, dark histories, but fascinating histories. And, and, and I think sometimes we worry about, without going into uh, politics of it, we worry about studying them now because we go, oh, well, we shouldn't. And I go, no, no, we must. No, we we absolutely must. We, yeah, we, I mean, history is a must for me because we realize everything we eat and drink in the United States, but everything, has a reason about creating who we are as Absolutely. an American or as a world person. And like even the stories I'm telling about tea, and I hope people enjoy them, but I think they just tell us that something that we take so much for granted. And same when you come to, like I said, with the, the history of the sandwich, you know, and Lord Montague, the, the, the guy who was, he was... The supposed, yeah. Well, no, but the, the reality is that there are, there are writings about it. There was actually a French ambassador who wrote about being there at one of the games at the Hellfire Club. This, he was a he was a hard worker, but he was a member of the Hellfire Club, Mr. Montague, Earl of Montague. And he basically, he was you know, at the tables, and he never wanted to stop gambling. So he would have food brought to him, like beef between two pieces of bread. Now, you could go back into the Torah and have people having things wrapped in bread, and of course you did. But it was brought to him. And this ambassador was there, this French ambassador. Again, I wrote about an episode on the history of the sandwich. And so he could carry on eating while he gambled uh, at the Hellfire Club. And then people began to copy it. And in, in fact, Samuel Pete in the 1600s talks mm-hmm. about going to a club and eating sandwiches. And they were very, you know, they were chunky and they would go there after going to the plays or after whatever they would have and have these wonderful sandwiches. So there is real provenance for the kind of Montague, the, the, the Earl of Sandwich. And I think that's it's really fascinating how it became such a part of, well, world culture. And I mean, uh, America has obviously taken sandwich creation yeah, uh, to, to a, a kind different, of level. different level, to a whole different level. But I do sometimes, and much as I said, I love eating, you know, give me a po' boy, give me, I mean, all of the, give me a, yeah. a French dip here in LA, give me all of these incredible sandwiches that I adore. But Every now and again, fait sample, as they say, just something a little light, a little elegant, a little nuanced, which is, you know, I think is, particularly with an afternoon tea, is something very, very special. Here I am today. I am, I've been doing Jubilee foods all week long, right? And so I know, I've, I've been watching. <laughs> and, I saw um, your, your millionaire, your millionaire shortbread looks fantastic. It's really, it's talk about crack cocaine, man. That is just like, you eat something, you're like, sugar, more sugar. Um, I'm making something a little more stodgy. And this is in honor of my father-in-law who makes the best egg sandwiches, bar none. And the reason that his are so good is because, and please bear with me, everyone listening, is he butters the bread before he puts the mayonnaise egg on, right? His egg mayonnaise, and I've made, I've altered it slightly. I have beautiful, perfect white bread, right? You know, from a bag because it's just perfect and even, and every hole on the bread is lovely. And I've made not just egg salad, but I made a sort of deviled egg salad. So it's oh. like egg salad, but slightly devilish with mustard and a little cayenne and stuff like that. Oh, so it that should be a, amazing. And I made, I made some. Here's some I made earlier. But I made some very cute 
I'll show them to you. I actually kind of recreated a deviled egg on a on a round. So I took the white, put it here, and then oh, piped in that. some filling. Just a little bit, of, and they're round with a little proper. So because is that the little anch- is that the little anchovy no. on that? I didn't go the anchovy route. I went for a, a bread and butter pickle. Oh, perfect. Well, that's good too. So a little acid is going to be yes. absolutely what you need with that. And, and for me, a great example, well, my favorite for afternoon tea, I love potted, what's called potted meats or fish, where mm-hmm. you have clarified butter and salmon. Mm-hmm. And well, I love just a great egg sandwich, a cucumber sandwich, cucumber with a little sandwich. Poached chicken, poached chicken, a little dill, or maybe some tarragon. These to me are just perfect with, and what you've got there with that egg sandwich would be fantastic with cheese. I will, I will, I'll share a story though about how my grandma, you're talking about buttering the bread. This yeah. is something that is, I, and I don't know if any other, uh, my grandmother, you know, Welsh side of the family, my mother's side, she would have a whole big loaf of bread unsliced. Mm. And what she would do was she would have the whole loaf under her arm. She would butter the loaf and then cut the slice from it. She would butter what part of the loaf? The top? So she would take the whole loaf. So she'd cut off the crust and then she'd butter the whole bread. She'd have the whole loaf, butter it, and then cut it. And then that would be the base of her. And apparently it's a very Welsh thing that you just had it. And what she would always do is she would always buy a big, one of these beautiful bloomer, wonderful loaves that you used to buy from the market. She would wash it when she got home because it had been out in the baker's. Who knows how long it had been there. She would put it into the range. uh, We had a range oven, and it would go crunchy on the outside. Then she would cut it. Then she would butter the bread. Then she would slice it, and then she would make her sandwiches using two slices that she'd already buttered on the loaf. I have no idea whether there's any kind of story to that, but all I know is it tasted different. And it Aww. was so good. Oh, the other one that she used to make was pot out like sardine uh, sandwiches. Oh, really good sardine sandwiches. And uh, with a big mug of tea. And oh, I, I get, even now I'm kind of getting that, that little kind of Proustian Madeleine thing going on. Yeah, I think sardines, all those tin fishes are really underrated. Oh, I love them. Pilchard. Yeah. A pilchard, pilchard. sandwich. Oh. I, gr- I went to college and at, at university, there was someone in my house who used to cook tinned pilchards, but all she would do was open the tin and put it in the stove and then walk away. And the <laughs> entire place smelled of oh. tinned pilchards cooking. And that's, that's not a good thing. That's, yeah, that's not a good memory, but they are wonderful things. I love pilchards. Um, do you have a preference to um, rectangles or triangles for my bread? Because I've got it all here. In um, beautiful, the crusts I'm, are off. I'm I'm into I'm I believe in what we call soldier. So oh, yeah. basically, if you've got that square, like a kind of half of that square, and mm-hmm. um, because then again, it's all about elegance. It's all about you can just take a bite of that while you're sipping your tea and showing your pinky ring. That's that's good. And the um, only other thing I I think like that is the way that it's displayed when you have your your afternoon tea displayed. Is part of it too. I think the 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 kind of when you go to one of the great afternoon and actually some of the very best I've been to have been in places like Hong Kong. Oh. Like if you go to the peninsula in Hong Kong, 
which is very British and uh, it well was certainly very British to the point not that I ever did this, but they would send you know my parents went a few times and they would send Rolls Royces to pick you up at the airport to bring you to the hotel. Oh, yes. And the first thing you the first thing you did you know after you settled in and your room you went and had after tea and everything was done. You know, like all going, if you've ever been to the raffles in Singapore, those very British, away from Britain hotels that are being even more British because they're not in Britain anymore, if that makes sense. I totally get and the it. Raffles, yes. And to me, that's something that I think you would, if, if anyone again gets a chance to do that, afternoon tea at the peninsula or the raffles in Singapore is something that you will never forget. Never that's forget. I- I, I, you know, it's some of those things you look at them like that is so much money. And it's one of these, it's, it's an elaborate event and it's worth the pennies that the many pennies that you have to pay for it. I think it's, I but mean, you're certainly not going to be able to read for the rest of the day. So you basically just count it as your meal for the day. You have your different types of tea. You could have a glass of champagne. You know, they, there is, I think at the raffles, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to come and kind of, you know, Cut the champagne with the with the swords and do all of that, all of that kind of fun stuff. And <laughs> here's the, here's the other thing about that is sometimes, particularly now, obviously where everyone's trying to look at saving money and we're yeah we're all in yeah. you know, interest. We live as as the Chinese say, may you live in interesting times. Yeah. But every now and again, <laughs> just to do something that is absolutely indulgent, I think is really wonderful. As much as you can and your budget allows, and obviously people are in different circumstances, but just to go and make yourself a really beautiful sandwich, a really good cup of tea, really just enjoy and take the time. That's the, the key, ritual. I think mm-hmm. without it, the ritual. And I was talking, in fact, with my wife about this today about something totally different. I said the rituals of events are things that I'm trying to connect to now because we're all so crazy right now. I really want to do that. And I think just get the chance. Go and, go and read a book about really great afternoon teas and make one at home with your friends and yeah. you know, just just do something fun. I mean, college, I remember doing this with some college kids once and I was helping them and showing them how to make teas and they'd never experienced it before. And I made tea and I made sandwiches and I made some cakes and I made, you know, little Victoria sponge. Or my, my Victoria sponge is horrible, by the way. I know yours is a lot better. Mine is quite nice, yes. <laughs> but I need to make. I, I'm not a. I am not a good baker. But, but I, you know, just they sat there and they. What I remember at the end of this a few years ago now in England, but they were just smiling, and like going, "I've never. We've never experienced this." And they'd spent three or four hours. They'd had a glass of wine. They'd had this. They'd had their tea. Mm-hmm. They'd had, and I was going, "What a great gift!" Like if you're thinking of giving someone a gift. Instead of yeah, buying them a present, we all get stuff. Right. But to take the time to make something, an experience that has history and tell them the stories and tell them the histories. And, you know, uh, to me, anyway. And that's, you know, one of the reasons to sort of wrap things up. That's one of the reasons I was like, well, you know, I'm not such a big royalist, but what a fantastic chance to sort of bring out the tradition, right, of all these special English desserts, you know, and sweets tea time because i think before we leave i just want to point out for people who've never had the tea time experience you get sandwiches and savories like i i've had little uh, cream puffs filled with foie gras and all sorts of things then you have cakes or then you have scones 
or scones, and then you have cakes. And so I here, uh, yes, I might like to just give you the because I get asked about this scones or scones, and the the true thing is it's scone as in on, not scone as in own. And, Good. And the reason uh, <laughs> and and of course one has to think about what one puts on first. That you're was doing my a question. Food. That was my question. I thought it was an important question to close out on because it can be so controversial, whether you well, put the clotted cream down or the jam or vice versa. Well, for me, yeah, I think, and I just want to make sure I get this right, otherwise I'll be ostracized from everywhere. I, I prefer to put my jam on first and then cream on top. To me, that seems like just the natural order of things because you, I, want, I want that. But, and I think that's the Cornish way. But Devon, 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 they um, obviously they get a little more angry about it and want to do it the other way. I think I think the people from Devon are just naturally a little angrier people. <laughs> we'll talk about the people from Devon on another episode. But on this, <laughs> please, please don't write in. Um, but that I don't understand the Devon method, which is cream all blotted on top and then a big blob of jam because you're not going to get jam in each bite. And to me, that's sort of yeah. It is all about distribution. You hit it absolutely perfectly. And and but what you're saying, I think, with all of this is you go and you have this experience with the scones, with the uh, and it is it is just fun. And the thing I always say about the royal family is like I said, I'm not a royalist, never have been. History I think teaches us that we probably shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. The one thing I will say about her madge, whatever criticism she has worked 80 years of her life truly believing in what she does. She has behaved impeccably with one or two exceptions you know, during the kind of whole Diana thing. She has yes. worked really, really hard. She has put in effort. And so from a personal point of view, I can't, I can't criticize her. I look at her in context of history. And yet, she is, I, I guarantee you, she's sitting there at 90-something watching the flybys, watching. You think they always say in England that the Queen thinks the entire world smells of fresh paint because everywhere she goes, they've been painting about three minutes before. And so <laughs> she just lives this extraordinary life, and she's done it without, without relatively without complaint. She's, and so for all of the criticism of the, the, of the kind of, What's the word I'm looking for for the of the, uh, like ro- the of itself? Yeah, of the pom- She herself, I I have very little criticism of because I think she's done an incredible job. I think, and on that note, we say um, cheers to the queen. Uh, long yeah. may she wave. And um, I'm seconding this point. I think everyone should create this own ritual for themselves because it, I am with you in the idea of creating rituals spending a little time sort of getting our own back. I feel like we've all been like off and the way that the world is going and we really haven't talked about Uh world events, but we won't on the way the world has been going. It's nice to sort of hide away with a nice cup of tea and making scones. And um, on that note, I thank you. There's so much more to talk about. We haven't even (laughs) talked about Catherine de Braganza and her bringing her tea to Britain, but we, uh, there's another time. Well, anytime. It, this has been so much, uh, so much of a joy. I love, you know, you, you, you tapped when you got in touch again and said we're going to talk about tea. Well, the answer is always going to be yes, always, 
always. So <laughs> drink, drink tea, talk about tea. And my promise to you is that I will teach you to make a perfect Victoria sponge. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Because I trust me, <laughs> my mine could be used to kind of I think I think Jimmy Hoffa is probably found in one of my old <laughs> Victorian sponges. <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much and have a wonderful weekend and eat a scone and drink some tea. Everybody. And see you. Everyone, absolutely. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me and my very extremely wonderfully special guest, Simon Majumder. Please tune into his Eat My Globe podcast. And don't forget, you can get the recipes to tea sandwiches and other great jubilee dishes so you can have your own tea party. All these can be found on my Substack at marissarotecups.substack.com. Have a wonderful week and a glorious jubilee.